Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper, read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 12 We'd have known that if we were liaising with Clyde, Falk said when they got outside. He tucked the box of Karen's and Billy's belongings under his arm. The cardboard stuck uncomfortably to his clammy skin. Yeah, well, no harm done. We found out anyway. Eventually. I don't know. It might be time to bring them in. Rako looked at him. You honestly feel confident that we've got enough to make that phone call, bearing in mind how they'll react... Falk opened his mouth to reply when a voice rang out across the playground. Hey, Aaron, wait! Falk turned to see Gretchen Shona jogging over. He felt his mood lift fractionally. The funeral attire had been swapped for shorts and a fitted blue shirt rolled up at the elbows. It suited her much better, Falk thought. Rako took the box from him. I'll meet you back at the car, mate, he said tactfully, with a polite nod at Gretchen. She stopped in front of Fork and pushed her sunglasses up, catching her blonde hair in a complicated bundle on top of her head. The blue of the shirt set off her eyes, he noticed. Hey, what are you still doing here? I thought you'd left. She was frowning and smiling at the same time. She reached out as she spoke and touched his elbow. He felt a pang of guilt. He should have let her know. We were having a word with Scott Whitlam, he said. The principal. Yeah, I know who Scott is. I'm on the school board. I mean, what are you doing in Kiwara? Fork looked past her. A gaggle of mums had their heads turned towards them, their eyes hidden behind sunglasses. He took Gretchen's arm and turned slightly so their backs were to the group. It's a bit complicated. The Hadlers asked me to look into what happened with Luke. You're kidding. Why? Has something come up? Fork had a powerful urge to blurt out the whole story, about Ellie, the alibi, the lies, the guilt. Gretchen was part of the original foursome. She was a balancing force, the light to Ellie's dark, the calm to Luke's craziness. She would understand. Over her shoulder, the mums were still watching. It's about the money, Falk said with a sigh. He gave her a watered-down version of Barb Hadler's concerns. Bad debts gone wrong. Jesus... She blinked, still for a moment as she processed the information. You think there's anything in it? Fork just shrugged. The conversation with Whitlam had thrown some new light on the suggestion. We'll see, but do me a favour and keep it to yourself for now. Gretchen frowned. Might be too late for that. Word's gone round that some cops were at Jamie Sullivan's earlier. Christ, how's that got out already? Fork asked, knowing the answer. Small town, fast gossip. Gretchen ignored the question. Just tread lightly, 
she reached out and brushed away a fly that had settled on Fork's shoulder. People are wound up pretty tight at the moment. It wouldn't take much to set them off. Fork nodded. Thanks. Understood. Anyway, Gretchen paused as a swarm of small boys careered by in a chaotic game of football, the weight of the memorial service already lifting from their small shoulders as the weekend came into sight. She shaded her eyes and waved at the group. Fork tried to pick her son from the pack but couldn't. When he looked back, Gretchen was watching him. How long do you think you'll be around for? A week, Fork hesitated. No more than that. Good. Her mouth turned up at the corners, and it could have been twenty years ago. When she walked away a few minutes later, Fork was clutching a scrap of paper with her mobile number and an arrangement to meet the following night on it, both scrawled in Gretchen's distinctive handwriting. You going and made yourself a new friend, mate? Rako said lightly as Fork climbed into the car. Old friend, thanks, Fork said but he couldn't help smiling. So, what do you want to do? Rako said, more serious now. He nodded at the cardboard box in the back seat. You want to call Clyde and tie yourself up to the arse in red tape, convincing them they might have stuffed up? Or do you want to go to the station and check out what's in the box? Falk looked at him for a moment, imagining that phone call. Yep, all right, station, box. Good decision. Just drive. The police station was a low red brick building at the far end of Kiwara's main street. The shops on either side had closed for good, their windows empty. Across the road was a similar story. Only the milk bar and the bottle shop seemed to be enjoying any real trade. Christ, it's dead around here, Falk said. That's the thing about money problems, they're contagious. Farmers have no cash to spend in shops, the shop goes under and then you've got yourself more people with no money to spend in shops. Apparently they'd been falling like dominoes. Roko pulled on the station door. It was locked. He swore and dug out his keys. On the door was a notice with station hours. Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm. Out of hours, victims of crime had to try their luck with Clyde, according to the sign. Falk looked at his watch. 4.51pm. A mobile number for emergencies had been written in pen underneath. Falk bet it was Roko's. Knocking off early, Rako called when they got inside, the annoyance evident in his tone. The receptionist, in her sixties but with the improbable coal-coloured hair of a young Elizabeth Taylor, raised her chin defiantly. I was in early, she said, stiffening slightly in her position behind the counter, handbag over her shoulder like a soldier's weapon. Rako introduced her as Deborah. She didn't shake hands. In the office space behind her, Constable Evan Barnes looked up guiltily, clutching his car keys. Afternoon, boss, Barnes said. About that time, isn't it? His voice was overly casual, and he made a big show of checking his watch. Oh, yeah, still a couple of minutes to go yet. A big man with a fresh-faced complexion and curly hair that stuck out in unfortunate tufts, he sat back down at his desk and started shuffling paper. Rako rolled his eyes. Oh, go on, bugger off, he said, lifting the counter hatch. Have a good weekend. We'll just have to hope the town doesn't burn to the ground at one minute to five, won't we? Deborah straightened her spine like a woman fortified by the knowledge she'd been in the right all along. By then, she said to Rako. 
She gave Fork a tiny, curt nod, her gaze firmly on his forehead rather than his eyes. Fork felt a cold bead of understanding drop somewhere in his chest. She knew. He wasn't really surprised. Assuming Deborah was Kiwara born and bred, she was the right age to remember Raleigh Deacon. It had been the most dramatic thing ever to happen in Kiwara, at least until the Hadler's deaths. She'd probably tutted over coffee as she'd read the newspaper articles under Ellie's black-and-white photo, traded nuggets of gossip with neighbours. Perhaps she'd known his dad. Before it happened, of course. She wouldn't have admitted to knowing the Fork family afterwards. Hours after Luke's face had disappeared from his bedroom window, Aaron lay awake. The events ran through his head on a loop. Ellie, the river, fishing, the note. Luke and I were shooting rabbits together. He waited for it all night, but when the knock came at last, it wasn't for him. Fork watched in mute horror as his father was forced to wash the fields from his hands and accompany the officers to the station. The name on the note did not specify which Fork, they said, and at 16, the younger one was technically still a child. Eric Fork, a willowy and stoic man, was kept in the station for five hours. Did he know Ellie Deacon? Yes, of course, she was a neighbour's child. She was a friend of his son's. She was the girl who was missing. He was asked for an alibi for the day of her death. He'd been out much of the afternoon buying supplies. In the evening, he'd popped into the pub, had been seen by a dozen people in a handful of locations. Tight enough, if not quite watertight. So the questions continued. Yes, he had spoken to the girl in the past. Several times? Yes. Many times? Probably. And no, he could not explain why Ellie Deacon had a note with his name on it and the date of her death. But Fork wasn't only his name, was it? The officers said pointedly. At that, Aaron's father fell silent. He clamped down and refused to say another word. They let him go. And then it was his son's turn. Barnes is on secondment from Melbourne. Rako said as Falk followed him under the hatch to the office. Behind them, the station door slammed shut and they were alone. Really? Falk was surprised. Barnes had the wholesome, milk-fed look of a homegrown country boy. Yeah, his parents are in farming, though. Not here, somewhere out west. I think that made him the obvious choice for the placement. I feel for the guy, really. His backside barely touched the ground in the city before they sent him up here. Having said that... Rako glanced towards the closed station door, then reconsidered. Never mind. Fork could guess. It was a rare day when a city force sent its best officer on a country secondment, especially to a place like Kiwara. Barnes was unlikely to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Rako may have been too tactful to say it, but the message was clear. In this station, he was pretty much on his own. They put the box of Karen's and Billy's belongings on a spare desk and opened it. The fluorescent lights hummed overhead. At the window, a fly bashed itself repeatedly against the glass. Aaron sat on a wooden chair, his bladder nervous and aching, and stuck to the plan. I was with Luke Hadler, shooting rabbits. Two. We got two. Yes, Ellie is... was, I mean, my friend. Yes, I saw her at school that day. No, we didn't fight. I didn't even see her later. I didn't attack her. I was with Luke Hadler. I was with Luke Hadler. We were shooting rabbits. I was with Luke Hadler. 
they had to let him go. Some of the whispers took on a new shape then. Not murder, perhaps, but suicide. A vulnerable girl led up the path by the fork boy was a popular version. Pursued and used by his slightly odd father was another. Who was to say? Either way, between them, they as good as killed her. The rumours were fed well by Ellie's father, Mal Deacon, and grew fat and solid. They sprouted legs and heads, and they never died. One night a brick was thrown through the fork's front window. Two days later, Aaron's father was turned away from the corner shop, forced to walk out empty-handed with burning eyes and his groceries piled on the counter. The following afternoon, Aaron was followed home from school by three men in a ute. They crept behind him as he pedalled his bike faster and faster, wobbling every time he dared look over his shoulder, his breath loud in his ears. Rako reached into the box and laid out the contents in a line on the desk. There was a coffee mug, a stapler with Karen written on it in whiteout, a heavy-knit cardigan, a small bottle of perfume called Spring Fling, and a framed picture of Billy and Charlotte. It was a meagre offering. Fork opened up the frame and looked behind the photo. Nothing. He put it back together. Across the desk, Rako took the cap off the perfume and sprayed it. A light citrusy scent floated into the air. Fork liked it. They moved on to Billy's belongings. Three paintings of cars, a small pair of gym shoes, a beginner's reading book and a pack of colouring pencils. Fork turned over the pages of the book, not at all sure what he was looking for. It was around that time he realised his father was watching him. From across the room, through a window, over his newspaper, Aaron would get the feathery sense across the back of his neck and would look up. Sometimes Eric's gaze would flick away. Sometimes it wouldn't. Contemplative and silent, Aaron waited for the question, but it didn't come. A dead calf was left on their doorstep, its throat cut so deep that the head was almost severed. The next morning, father and son bundled what they could into their truck. Aaron said a hasty goodbye to Gretchen and a longer goodbye to Luke. None of them mentioned why he was leaving. As they drove out of Kiwara, Mal Deacon's white ute followed them for a hundred kilometres past the town limits. They'd never gone back. Karen made Billy come home that afternoon, Fork said. He'd been thinking it over since leaving the school. He was supposed to be out playing with his friend and she kept him home on the day he was killed. How do you feel about chalking that up to coincidence? Not good, Rako shook his head. Me neither. But if she'd had any idea what was going to happen, surely she'd have got both kids as far away as possible. Maybe she suspected something was up but didn't know what, Fork said. Or how bad it was going to be. Fork picked up Karen's coffee mug and put it down again. He checked the box, felt around the edges. It was empty. I was hoping for something more, Rako said. Me too. They stared at the items for a long time, then one by one, put them back. Chapter 13 The cockatoos were shrieking in the trees when Fork left the station. They called each other home to roost in a deafening chorus as the early evening shadows grew. The air felt clammy and a line of sweat ran down Fork's back. 
He wandered along the main street in no rush to reach the pub waiting at the other end. It wasn't late, but few people were about. Falk peered into the windows of the abandoned shops, pressing his forehead against the glass. He could still remember what most of them used to be. The bakery, a bookshop. Many had been completely stripped out. It was impossible to tell how long they'd stood bare. He paused as he came to a hardware store displaying a line of cotton work shirts in the window. A grey-haired man wearing one of the very same shirts under an apron with a name badge had his hand on the open sign hanging on the door. He paused mid-flip as he noticed Fork assessing the merchandise. Fork plucked at his own shirt. It was the same one he'd worn to the funeral and was stiff from being rinsed out in the bathroom sink. It stuck under his arms. He went inside. Under the harsh shop lights, the man's warm smile froze mid-grin as recognition kicked in a moment later. His eyes darted around the deserted shop, which Fork suspected had been as empty for most of the day. A moment's hesitation, then the smile continued. Easier to have principles when you've got dollars in the till, Fork thought. The shopkeeper guided him through the store's limited apparel selection with the thoroughness of a gentleman's tailor. Fork bought three shirts, because the man seemed so grateful that he was prepared to buy one. Back on the street, Fork tucked the purchases under his arm and continued on. It wasn't much of a walk. He passed a takeaway that seemed to offer cuisine from any corner of the world, as long as it was fried or could be displayed in a pie warmer. A doctor's surgery, a pharmacy, a tiny library, a one-stop store that appeared to sell everything from animal feed to gift cards, several boarded-up shop fronts, and he was back at the fleece. That was it. Kiwara's main hub. He looked back, toying with the idea of giving it another pass, but couldn't work up the enthusiasm. Through the window of the pub he could see a handful of men staring indifferently at the TV. His bare room was all that was waiting for him upstairs. He put his hand in his pocket and felt his car keys. He was halfway to Luke Hadler's place before he knew it. The sun was lower in the sky when Fork parked his car out the front of the Hadler's farmhouse in the same spot as before. The yellow police tape still hung from the door. This time... He ignored the house and walked straight over to the biggest of the barns. He peered up at the tiny security camera installed above the door. It looked cheap and functional. Fashioned from dull grey plastic with a single red light glowing, it'd be easy to miss if you didn't know it was there. Fork imagined Luke up on a ladder, fixing it to the wall, angling it just right. It had been positioned to capture as much as possible of the entrances to the barns and the shed where the valuable farm equipment was stored. The house was merely an afterthought, the small slice of driveway captured by accident. The farm wouldn't go under if thieves stole the five-year-old TV. Losing the water filter from the barn would be another story. If someone else had come along that day, had they been aware of the camera, Fork wondered? Could they have been there before and known what would be captured, or had they just been lucky. Luke would have known his ute's number plate would be recorded if he had been the one behind the wheel, Fork thought. But by that point, maybe he simply didn't care. Fork walked across the yard and did a complete circuit of the outside of the house. Rako had been as good as his word at keeping out prying eyes. Every blind was drawn and every door locked tight. There was nothing to see. Needing to clear his head, Falk left the house behind him and tramped out across the fields. The property shouldered the Kiwara River, 
and up ahead he could see a copse of gums marking the boundary. The summer sun hung low and orange in the sky. He often did his best thinking on his feet. Usually that involved pounding the streets around his city office block, dodging tourists and trams, or clocking up kilometres around the botanic gardens or the bay when he was really stumped. Fork knew he used to be at home in the fields, but now it all seemed very different. His head still felt crowded. He listened to the rhythm of his steps against the hard ground and the bird calls echoing from the trees. The shrieks seemed louder out here. He was nearly at the boundary when he slowed his pace, then stopped altogether. He wasn't sure what made him hesitate. The line of trees in front of him stood shadowy still. Nothing moved. An uneasy feeling crept up Fork's shoulders and neck. Even the birds suddenly seemed hushed. Feeling a little foolish, he glanced over his shoulder. The fields stared back blankly. The Hadler farm lay lifeless in the distance. He'd walked the whole way around it, Fork told himself. There was no one there. There was no one left in that place. He turned back in the direction of the river, a feeling of foreboding still fluttering in his chest. When the answer came... It crept up slowly, then thundered home all at once. Where Fork stood now, he should be hearing the rush of water, the distinct sound of the river carving its way through the country. He closed his eyes and listened, seeking it out, willing it to materialise. There was only an eerie nothingness. He opened his eyes and took off at a run. He plunged into the tree line, pounding along the well-worn trail, ignoring the whip and sting of the occasional overgrown branch. He reached the riverbank, breathing fast, and pulled up short at the edge. There was no need. The huge river was nothing more than a dusty scar in the land. The empty bed stretched long and barren in either direction, its serpentine curves tracing the path where the water had flowed. The hollow that had been carved over centuries was now a cracked patchwork of rocks and crabgrass. Along the banks... Gnarled grey tree roots were exposed like cobwebs. It was appalling. Struggling to accept what his eyes were telling him, Fork clambered into the cavity, hands and knees scraping against the baked bank. He stopped in the dead centre of the river, in the open void where the heavy ribbon of water had once been deep enough to close over his head. The same water he and Luke had dived into every summer, wallowing and splashing as they soaked up its coolness. The water he had stared into for hours on bright afternoons, fishing lines dangling hypnotically with his father's sturdy weight at his shoulder. The water that had forced its way down Ellie Deacon's throat, greedily invading her body until there was no room left for the girl herself. Fork tried to take a deep breath, but the air tasted warm and cloying in his mouth. His own naivety taunted him like a flicker of madness. How could he have imagined fresh water still ran by these farms as animals lay dead in the fields? How could he nod dumbly as the word drought was thrown around and never realise this river ran dry? He stood on shaky legs, his vision blurred as all around the cockatoos whirled and screamed into the scorching red sky. Alone in that monstrous wound, Fork put his face in his hands and just once screamed himself. Chapter 14 Fork sat for a long while on the riverbank, letting a numbness seep over him as the heavy sun dipped lower. 
Eventually, he forced himself to his feet. He was losing the light. He knew where he was headed next, but couldn't be sure of finding it in the dusk. He turned his back on the path leading to the Hadler's farm and instead headed in the other direction. Twenty years ago, there'd been a small river trail. Now Fork had to rely on his memory, picking his way over exposed roots and dry undergrowth. He kept his head down, focused on not losing his way. Without the great river flowing alongside as a beacon, he caught himself nearly wandering off track several times. The surroundings looked different now, and markers that had once been familiar failed to appear. As he was beginning to worry he'd gone too far, he found it. He felt a sharp rush of relief. It was a short distance from the bank, almost overrun by scrub. As he trampled his way through the thicket, a spark of happiness raced through him. And for the first time since he'd arrived in Kiwara, he felt the stirrings of homecoming. He put his hand out. It was still there. It was still the same. The rock tree. Shit, where'd they go? Ellie Deacon frowned and delicately kicked aside a small pile of leaves with the toe of one beautiful boot. They're down there somewhere. I heard them hit the ground. Aaron scrambled round the rock tree. He crouched, scouring the ground and sifting through dried leaves for Ellie's house keys. She watched through hooded eyes and half-heartedly turned over a small stone with her foot. Fork ran his hand over the rock tree and smiled properly for what felt like the first time in days. As a child, it had seemed like a miracle of nature. A huge eucalyptus had grown tightly against a solid boulder, its trunk curving around to trap the two in a gnarled embrace. When he was younger, Fork had been at a complete loss to explain others' lack of fascination with the tree. Hikers walked past every week with barely a glance, and even to other kids it was little more than a quirky landmark. But every time Fork saw it, he wondered how many years it had taken for the rock tree to form, millimetre by millimetre. It gave him the free-falling sensation that he himself was a tiny dot in time. He liked it. More than 20 years later, he looked at the rock tree and could feel it anew. Aaron was alone with Ellie that day, which at 16 was a scenario he both craved and feared. He chatted incessantly, annoying even himself, but the bottom kept dropping out of the conversation like an unexpected pothole in the road. It had never used to happen, but recently it seemed to creep into all their interactions like a fault line. Aaron frequently found himself casting around for something to say that would elicit more than a raised eyebrow or a nod. Occasionally he'd strike gold and the corner of her mouth would lift. He loved those moments. He would make a mental note of what he'd said, storing it to analyse later hoping to find a pattern on which he could build a whole repertoire of banter so witty that she couldn't help but smile. So far, the pattern was disappointingly random. They'd spent much of the afternoon leaning against the rock tree in the shade. Ellie had seemed more distant than normal. Twice that afternoon he'd asked her something and she hadn't appeared to even hear him. Eventually, terrified of boring her, he'd suggested tracking down Luke or Gretchen. To his relief, she shook her head. I don't think I could face the chaos right now, she'd said. It's all right with just us, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Of course it was. He tried to keep his voice light. What have you got planned for tonight? She made a face. 
I'm working. For the past year, she'd had a part-time job, which mainly involved standing disinterestedly behind the counter of the milk bar. Didn't you work last night? Milk bar opens every day, Aaron. I know, but... It was more work than usual. Out of nowhere, he wondered if she was lying to him, then felt ridiculous. She wouldn't bother. He watched as she repeatedly tossed her keyring idly in the air and caught it, her shiny purple nails reflecting the afternoon sunlight. He was trying to work up the courage to reach up and snatch the keyring from her in mid-air. He could tease her gently, the way Luke would do. And then... Well, then Aaron wasn't sure what. So it had almost been a relief when Ellie threw it too high and it sailed backwards over their heads. The keys clanged once off the boulder and they heard the metallic thump as they hit the ground. Four crouched by the rock tree and shifted position a few times until he found the right angle. He let out a little grunt of surprise and satisfaction when he finally saw it. The gap. Hey, look at this. Aaron leaned back and forth from where he was kneeling. A deep crevice in the heart of the rock tree appeared, then disappeared as he moved to a slightly different angle. He'd never noticed it before. A single sweet spot where the base of the tree was curved out rather than flush with the rock. An optical illusion, it was almost invisible from all but one angle. Aaron peered into the dead space. It was big enough to squeeze his arm, shoulder and head through if he'd wanted to. Instead, he saw what he was looking for tucked right inside the entrance. He triumphantly closed his hand around Ellie's keys. Fork peered into the mouth of the gap. He could see nothing beyond the entrance. He found a small stone and tossed it in, listening to it rattle off the sides. Nothing scurried or slithered out. Fork hesitated, then rolled his sleeve down as far as it would go and dipped his hand into the inky entrance. The tips of his fingers landed on an object, small and square and unnatural, and he scooped it up. As he did, something invisible scuttled across his wrist and he snatched his hand out. He straightened, laughing at his pounding heart. Fork opened his palm and felt a jolt of recognition. It was a small metal cigarette lighter, battered, weather-beaten, but still with a working hinge. Fork grinned and turned it upside down, knowing what he would find. There, in an earlier version of his own writing, were scratched the initials. A.F. Never a keen smoker, he'd had it mainly for show, and one day towards the end had hidden it rather than risk getting caught with it by his dad. Fork opened the lid but didn't dare light it, not in these conditions. He rubbed his palm over the metal and debated slipping the lighter into his pocket. But it felt like it belonged here, in a different time. After a moment, he reached into the gap and put it back. Ellie crouched, her hand hot on his shoulder as she wobbled and steadied herself. She was close enough that he could see the mascara coating the individual lashes as she narrowed her eyes and peered in. Her shoulder pressed painfully into his own as she tentatively reached into the gap with her hand, checking out its size. That's pretty cool, she said, deadpan. It was difficult to tell if she meant it. I found your keys, Aaron said, holding them up. She turned to face him. He could see the little specks in the corners of her eyes where her makeup had bled. She'd cut back on the booze lately, and up close, her skin looked smooth and clear. <laughs>
Say you did. Thank you, Aaron. You're welcome, Ellie, he smiled. He could feel her breath on his cheeks. He wasn't sure if he actually moved his head or just wanted to, but suddenly her face was closer and she was kissing him, pressing those pink lips hard against his. Lusciously sticky with a hint of artificial cherry, it was better than he'd imagined and he pushed back, wanting to taste more, feeling the fizz and pop of pure joy. He lifted a hand to her shiny hair, but as he slipped it gently around the back of her head, she gasped a little, her mouth still on his, and jerked away. She sat back on the ground with a thump and lifted her fingers first to her mouth and then to her hair. Aaron was frozen, crouched down with his open mouth still tasting of her as horror flooded through him. She was looking up at him. I'm sorry, Ellie, I'm... No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean... So sorry, it's my fault, I thought you wanted... Aaron, no, honestly, it's fine, it's just... What? A breath. It took me by surprise. Oh. Then... Are you all right? Yes. She opened her mouth as though about to say something more, but the silence stretched out. He thought for a heart-stopping moment there were tears in her eyes, but she blinked and they were gone. Aaron stood and offered a hand to help her up from the ground. For a terrible second he thought she might not take it, but she slipped her palm into his and hauled herself up. He took a step back, giving her some distance. I'm sorry, he repeated. Please don't say that. Okay. Are we okay? To his surprise, she took one small step in, closing the distance between them. Before he knew what was happening, her mouth pressed softly, briefly to his, and the taste of cherries was back. We're okay. She stepped away as quickly as she'd stepped in. I told you, it took me by surprise. By the time Aaron's mind had caught up, it was all over. She was leaning down, brushing the dirt off her jeans. I'd better get going, but thanks. She didn't look up. For finding my keys, I mean. He nodded. Hey, Ellie said as she turned to leave, let's not tell anyone about this. Keep it just for us. Which, the gap or... She gave a laugh. The gap, Ellie looked at him over her shoulder. But maybe the other thing as well, for now, anyway. Both corners of her mouth were turned up a tiny bit. He wasn't entirely sure, but he thought on balance it had been a good day. Fork had never told anyone else about the gap or their kiss. He was fairly sure Ellie hadn't either. Not that she'd had long to keep the secret. Three weeks later and 20 metres from where he stood, Ellie's pale, pickled body was dragged from the river. Fork had never come down here again after she was found. He hadn't had much chance even if he'd wanted to. Within a month, he and his father were 500 kilometres away in Melbourne. He'd always felt glad he and Ellie had discovered the gap when they had, just the two of them. There would have been plenty of opportunity when they were younger, hanging around the rock tree in a tight trio with Luke. But then, by default, it would have automatically become Luke's find. He would have claimed full custody when, around the age of 12, the threesome developed a crack neatly along the gender divide. None of them noticed until it was too late. 
Ellie was gradually inducted into the foreign world of girls and skirts and clean hands and conversations that made Aaron and Luke exchange looks of bewilderment. It was a slow migration, but one day Aaron looked up and realised it was just him and Luke, and had been for months. They barely missed a beat. She was only a girl. It was probably for the best that she didn't tag along. Ellie melted out of their consciousness with an ease Fork now found staggering, but for three years he barely recalled thinking about her once. He must have seen her out and about. There was no way they could have avoided it. But when she re-emerged in his life at 15, it was like she'd been reborn, fully formed and trailing fascination and mystery behind her like perfume. It had been yet another Saturday night for him and Luke sitting on the back of a bench in Centenary Park, Feet on the seat like true rebels, one eye out for the local cop like true small-town boys. A crunch of gravel and a shifting shadow, and Ellie Deacon had appeared as if from nowhere. Her hair was now an artificial jet black, and the split ends almost touched her elbows. It shone dully under the orange park lamps. She was alone. She sauntered over, jeans tight, boots artfully scuffed, lace brass strap peeking out from the wide neckline of her top. She ran her eye-lined gaze over the two boys as they stared back, mouths ever so slightly agape. Ellie raised an eyebrow at the can of warm beer they were sharing, reached into her fake leather bag and pulled out a mostly full bottle of vodka. Room for one more? she said. They'd nearly fallen off the bench in their haste to shuffle over. The years disappeared with the vodka and by the time they'd made a dent in the bottle, the trio was reformed. But tiny variances in their friendship hinted at new paths to be explored. Conversations had a fresh edge. The boys still occasionally spent time as a pair, but Aaron found himself going to significant lengths to limit opportunities for Luke and Ellie to be together without him. He never discussed it with Luke but the rate at which his own attempts at time alone with her were thwarted made him suspect his friend was running a similar covert operation. The group dynamics had taken a subtle but definite shift, with none of them quite yet sure where they had landed. Ellie never really explained why she'd returned to the boys. When Aaron once asked, she rolled her eyes skywards. Bunch of bitches, she said. If it doesn't involve their reflection in a mirror, they're not interested. At least you two don't care if I cramp your style. She lit a cigarette and looked at him frankly as though that explained everything. Maybe it did. The friendship was still being cemented as it faced its first real test. When the pressure was applied, it came unexpectedly from the heel of Gretchen Shona's hot pink shoes. Even in Kiwara, social hierarchies had to be observed and Gretchen was a creature most commonly sighted tossing back her golden hair and laughing amid a crowd of followers. So Aaron and Ellie had sat open-mouthed as Luke rocked up at Centenary Park one night with his arm flung around the girl's shoulders. A sharp growth spurt had put Luke half a head above most of their classmates and filled out his shoulders and chest in the right ways. In the shadowy park that night, with Gretchen's hair falling in a tousled curtain over his jacket sleeve and a definite swagger in his step, Aaron realised for the first time how much his friend looked like a man. Gretchen was flushed and giggling as Luke introduced them. He caught Aaron's eye over the top of her head 
and gave a not-so-subtle wink. Aaron nodded, duly impressed. There were a thousand places Gretchen Shona could be on a Saturday night, and yet she was there, by Luke's side. Having rarely been invited to exchange words with Gretchen in the past, Aaron had been pleasantly surprised. She was charming and unexpectedly quick-witted. She chatted easily and within moments had made him laugh. He could see why people flocked to be nearer. She radiated an energy that begged to be basked in. Behind Aaron, Ellie cleared her throat with a tiny noise and he realised with a start that he'd almost forgotten she was there. Her look as he turned was one of mild disdain, but not surprise, as though he and Luke had failed a test they hadn't been expected to pass. His gaze jumped from Gretchen's smile to Ellie's cold expression, red flags popping up loud and bright but far too late. He glanced at Luke, expecting to see the same realisation dawning. Instead, Luke was watching with curious amusement. For a tense moment, no one said anything. Gretchen suddenly flashed the other girl a conspiratorial smile and made a spectacularly bitchy comment about one of Ellie's former friends. There was a pregnant pause. Then Ellie gave a small snort of laughter. Gretchen sealed the deal by passing around her own cigarettes. A space was made for her on the park bench that night and every Saturday night for the next year. Jesus, she's the human equivalent of bubble bath, Ellie whispered to Aaron one evening shortly after, but she couldn't hide the tiny smile as she spoke. They'd all been laughing at Gretchen's story of an older boy who'd asked her out by carving words into crops and ruined his father's whole field in the process. Now she and Luke were deep in conversation, heads so close they were nearly touching. Gretchen gave a playful laugh and cast her eyes down as Luke murmured something Aaron didn't catch. He turned back to Ellie. You and I could go somewhere else if she's annoying you, Aaron said. We don't have to hang around here. Ellie regarded him through a veil of smoke for a moment, then shook her head. Nah, she's okay, she said. Bit of an airhead, but she's harmless. Fair enough. Aaron sighed silently and took the cigarette she offered him. He turned to light it and saw Luke slip his arm around Gretchen's shoulders and lean in for a quick kiss. As Luke sat back, he glanced over the top of Gretchen's head in their direction. Ellie who was examining the lit tip of her cigarette with a faraway look in her eye, didn't react. It was there and gone in a flash, but Aaron saw the frown flit across his friend's face. It occurred to him that he wasn't the only one a little put out that the girls seemed to be getting on so well. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. 
Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.